Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. This episode of Ghost Town is brought to you by Yarn. Yarn offers everything true crime from their chat fiction stories to choose-your-own-adventure experiences and now full audio dramas. My favorite is their latest podcast, Strange Street, where you follow the main character, Cece, into this mysterious alternate universe. It had me guessing the whole time. If you love true crime podcasts like I do, then this is for you. Are you running out of shows to binge? Same here. Now is the perfect time to check out some of the hit series on the Yarn app. Millions, yes, millions have already binged some of their top series like Mystery Dog, Modern Dating, and Haunted Camper. With over 27 million downloads, Yarn is a must. Their format is different than the traditional TV series. Imagine binging your favorite characters and series through text interactions right through your phone, almost making it real. Addicting, right? Download Yarn now. Tap through the most addictive and immersive stories today only on Yarn. Trust me, with over 27 million downloads, Yarn is a must-play. Download Yarn for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Y-A-R-N. Download it today to watch, read, and listen to all your favorite fiction stories. From steamy to horror, Yarn has it all. The ultimate survival story. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town. This is the story of the crash of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 and the 72-day nightmare of the surviving passengers that included avalanches, blindness, and cannibalism. I initially was researching something that I wanted to do for this episode, and I just want to say this has got to be the most graphic and horrifying episode that I have ever researched. So I I just want to put a disclaimer out there. The story is pretty well known, but it was really tough to get through. (laughs) So if you're feeling sensitive right now yeah. or you just don't and and i probably am one of those people Sorry? i'm actually saying this to myself yeah just either brace yourself or maybe skip this one or wait for another time where you're more prepared yeah for it and when i think about the ones that we've done that are really graphic they are hard and they include a lot of victims but this is 
this is like there's no evil person. The evil person is the mountains. It's all victim stories. It's all survival. Circumstantial. Yeah. I mean, it's just like it, the hits keep coming. So I just want to say that. I'm going to put that out there. It's a really compelling story. Again, it's a story of human triumph, all of that. On October 13th, 1972, members of the Amateur Old Christians Club Rugby Union team from Montevideo, Uruguay, were scheduled to play a match against the English rugby team Old Boys Club in Santiago, Chile. The English team club president chartered an Air Force plane to fly the team over the Andes to Santiago. The plane could carry 40 passengers and five crew members. While this type of aircraft was considered by some to be underpowered, it was nicknamed the lead sled. What it lacked in power, it made up for an operation experience. The pilot, Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas, and I want to say, too, I'm sorry if I get names wrong. I'm going to do my best, but I think I'm going to mess it up. But I'm trying to be as respectful and as loyal to pronunciations as I can. Ferratus was an experienced Air Force veteran who had a total of 5,117 flying hours. To put this into context, according to the New York Times, the average just general aviation pilot logs fewer than 100 hours a year. Some people consider a pilot a novice until they reach 500 hours. Also, Ferratus had flown across the Andes 29 times before. He was a pro. He knew what he was doing. He was accompanied by co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Laguara. There were 10 extra seats in the plane, so the team members invited a few friends and family members to join them. When someone canceled last minute, a woman named Graziella Mariani bought the seat in the plane so she could attend her oldest daughter's wedding. On October 12th, the plane left Carrasco International Airport, but a storm front over the Andes forced them to stop overnight in Mendoza, Argentina. Although there's a direct 120-mile route from Mendoza to Santiago, the high mountains require a 25,000 altitude to get there, to get over the mountains, and the plane's level of operation was up to 28,000 feet. So it was kind of customary for this type of plane to do a 90-minute U-shaped route to both conserve fuel and not get you know, dangerously high. On the morning of the 13th, conditions over the Andes were pretty shitty, but it was supposed to clear up by early afternoon. The pilot waited and took off at 2.18 p.m. on Friday, October 13th from Mendoza. He flew south from Mendoza towards Malargue Radio Beacon at a flight level of 18,000 feet. The captain radioed the airport with their position and told them they would reach 8,251 feet high around 321 over the Plachon Pass, the air traffic control handoff point from one of the Andes sides to the other. And so, you know, it was a general trafficking situation. Once across the mountain in Chile, south of Curaçao, the aircraft was supposed to turn north and initiate descent into Puel Airport in Santiago. Of course, it did not happen that way. As they flew through the Andes at 18,000 feet, the clouds obstructed the pilot's view. Some reports state that he was incorrectly estimating his position using dead reckoning, which is new to me and a fancy, scary to term for estimating where you are just based on speed and where you used to be. Ferrandez was also relying on radio navigation, which is not very good where he was. 3.21 p.m. shortly after transitioning Plachon Pass, about 40 miles before the airport in Santiago, LaGuara contacted Santiago and notified air traffic controllers that he expected to reach Curaçao, the city before the airport, a minute later. The flight time from the pass to Curaçao is normally 11 minutes, but only three minutes later, the pilot told Santiago that they were passing Curaçao and turning north. He requested permission from air traffic control to descend. The controller in Santiago, unaware that the flight was still pretty much up in the Andes Mountains, authorized him to descend to 11,000 feet. Later analysis of their flight path found the pilot had not only turned too early, but the turn was just much too sharp. So they were in this place that nobody knew where they were, not even the captain. 
The plane started to crash, and the rugby players joked about the turbulence until some passengers realized that the plane was getting way too close to the mountain. In an attempt to gain altitude, the plane began to climb until it was nearly vertical, and then it stalled and shook. The plane's ground collision alarm sounded, and then the passengers officially freaked out. Witness accounts and evidence at the scene indicated the plane struck the mountain either two or three times. The pilot was able to bring the aircraft nose over the ridge, but at 3.34 p.m., the lower part of the tail cone probably clipped the ridge around 14,000 feet. The next collision severed the right wing. Some evidence indicates it was thrown back with such force that it tore off the tail cone. When the tail detached, it took with it the rear portion of the fuselage, including two rows of seats from the rear section of the passenger cabin, the galley, the baggage hold, vertical stabilizer, and horizontal stabilizers, leaving a gaping hole in the back of the plane. Three passengers, the navigator, and a flight attendant were instantly lost when the tail section blew off. Still, the plane kept going another 600 feet until a wing got torn off. When this occurred, two more passengers fell out of the plane. The front portion of the fuselage flew straight through the air before sliding down the steep slope at 220 miles per hour like a high-speed toboggan for almost 3,000 feet before colliding with the snowbank. The impact against the snowbank crushed the cockpit and the two pilots inside. Most of the plane came to rest on a glacier at over 11,000 feet, 50 miles east of its planned route. Of the 45 people on the plane, five were killed in the tail section when it broke apart. Lieutenant Ramon Sal Martinez, Orvido Ramirez, Gaston Costamale, Alejo Hunje and Guido Magri. A few seconds later, Daniel Shaw and Carlos Valeta fell out of the rear fuselage. Valeta survived his fall, but stumbled down the snow-covered glacier, fell into deep snow, and was asphyxiated. His body was found by survivors on December 14th. At least four died from the impact of the fuselage hitting the snowbank, which ripped the remaining seats from their anchors and hurled them to the front of the plane. Team physician Dr. Francisco Nicola and his wife Esther Nicola, Eugenio Parado and Fernando Vasquez, who was a medical student, pilot Ferratus died instantly when the nose gear compressed the instrument panel against his chest, forcing his head out of the window. Co-pilot LaGuara was critically injured and trapped in the crushed cockpit. He asked one of the passengers to find a pistol and shoot him, but the passenger could not bring himself to do it. 33 passengers survived the initial crash, although many of these were people that were already seriously injured with wounds, including broken legs from the aircraft seats, which literally snapped their legs during impact. The penetrating smell of plane fuel spread and made many scramble if they could outside of the wreckage in fear of a fire or explosion. Canessa and Gustavo Zerbino, both second-year medical students, acted quickly to assess the severity of people's wounds and treat those they could help most. Survivor Nando Parado had a skull fracture and remained in a coma for three days. Enrique Platero had a piece of metal stuck in his abdomen. That one removed, took out a few inches of intestine with it. Both Arturo Niguera's legs were broken in several places. None of the passengers with compound fractures survived. Now, back in Chile, the Air Search and Rescue Service was notified within the hour that the flight was missing and sent out four planes that searched the mountains the rest of the day. The news of the missing flight reached Uruguayan media about 6 p.m. that night. A grim realization set in the plane had come down in one of the most remote part of the Andes. Unknown to everybody, the flight had crashed about 13 miles from an actual uh, abandoned resort called Hotel Termas that might have provided them some kind of shelter. During the first night, five more people died. Co-pilot LaGuara, Francisco Abal, Graziella Mariani, Felipe McQuinn, and Julio Martinez Lamas. Passengers removed the broken seats and other debris from the aircraft and fashioned a kind of a crude shelter. 27 people crammed themselves inside of the broken fuselage, which is about 8 feet by 9 feet. To try to keep out the cold, they used luggage, seats, and snow to close off the open end of the fuselage. They also improvised in other ways. 
Fido Strouch devised a way to obtain water in freezing conditions by using sheet metal from under the seats and placing snow on it. The solar collector melted snow, which dripped into empty wine bottles. They removed the seat covers, which were partially made of wool, and used them to keep warm. They used the cushions themselves as snowshoes. Marcelo Perez, captain of the rugby team, assumed leadership and the responsibility of food. The survivors had extremely little food between them, eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three small jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, candies, dried plums, and several bottles of wine. During the days that followed the crash, they divided this into very small amounts to make their meager supply last as long as they could. Snow blindness, which was new to me, was also a huge problem. This is when your eyes are exposed to much sunlight or like sun reflection as you might when you're in a lot of snow. Snow is very reflective. It causes a painful deterioration of the cornea, kind of like a really bad sunburn on your eyes. To prevent this, Strouch, kind of the de facto inventor of the remaining people, improvised sunglasses using the sun visors in the pilot's cabin, wire, and a bra strap. On the second day, 11 planes from Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay searched the Andes, a few planes even flying pretty close to the crash site. Maddening. The survivors tried to use lipstick recovered from the luggage to write an SOS on the roof of what remained of the plane, but quit after realizing they lacked enough lipstick to make anything visible from the air. They saw three aircraft fly overhead, but could not get their attention, and none of the aircraft crews could spot, again, the white fuselage in the white snow. Nando Parada woke from his coma after three days, and he was given a single chocolate-covered peanut, which he survived on for three days. When he woke up, he also learned that his 19-year-old sister, Susanna Parada, was severely injured. He attempted to keep her alive, but with nights that went to almost negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, she would die on day eight. And I just want to also say that most of these people, these rugby players, they were really young. They were like 19, 20, 21, 22. So think about that also just in terms of survival, but also just being that young and realizing how much trauma that they went through. It's pretty astonishing. To add to this already horrific situation, the remaining 27 survivors were not used to the cold. Most of them lived by the sea. Some had never seen snow before, and none had experienced snow at this high altitude. Eventually, of course, the food ran out. The group tried to eat parts of the airplane, like the cotton inside the seats and the leather, but that made them physically ill. A light of hope came when the survivors found a small transistor radio jam between the seats and the aircraft that they could use to get radio signals. But of course, that was a good thing. A bad thing was, on their 11th day on the mountain, all of the survivors learned on the radio that the search efforts were canceled three days before. The searchers concluded that there was no hope and terminated the search. They hoped to find the bodies in the summer when the snow melted. So imagine hearing that about you. You've already survived on a radio. Brutal. But it gets worse. Starving, cold, and knowing that rescue efforts had been called off, the people still alive agreed that if they died, the others should eat them in order to survive. So this is really the kind of the famous part of the story, which it, it shouldn't be. You know, it's it's a level of survival that is really, you know, horrible and brave and just something that you, you have to consider and do if you're in an extreme and horrific situation like this. Survivor Eduardo Strouch described the decision to eat the dead. And at the beginning, when I realized it was what I was going to do, my mind and my conscience was okay, but physically it was very difficult to get in the first day. Even to us, they were still small pieces of frozen meat. It doesn't taste anything. I get used to, and at the end, absolutely disconnected with the origin of that food, which is what they had to do, again, to survive. Eating the bodies of classmates, close friends, or sometimes relatives was literally the only thing that kept them alive. Knessa used broken glass from the aircraft windshield as a cutting tool. 
He set the example by swallowing the first matchstick-sized strip of frozen flesh. Several others did the same. The next day, more survivors ate what was offered to them. Some refused and continued to. There were some people that didn't eat any of the meat or, or just couldn't keep it down. The group dried the meat in the sun, which made it a little bit more palatable. They were initially so revolted by the experience that they could only eat skin, muscle, and fat. When those were consumed, however, they had to eat hearts, lungs, and brains. They got a half-pound ration per day around noon, again, all in the name of survival. What was an interesting part of it, too, and, and something that they had a hard time with and then helped them through this incredibly extreme and terrifying circumstance, all of the passengers were Roman Catholic Eating other people was obviously horrible and looked upon as damning, but it also helped them rationalize their actions, connecting it to the Holy Communion. Javier Methal and his wife Liliana, the only surviving female passenger, were the last holdouts of the group to, to get into cannibalism. But the idea of communion or the Eucharist helped her, Liliana, do what she needed to do to survive. A few of the survivors became insistent that the only way to get out would be to climb over the mountains and search for help. Because of the co-pilot's dying statement that the aircraft had passed Curacao, the group thought that the Chilean countryside was just a couple miles away west. So they were still clinging to the idea that what the pilot said was right, which is a huge, huge difficulty in them getting rescued, obviously. This was true. The Chilean countryside was a couple miles away, plus like 50 miles. Survivors tried to venture out and explore, but altitude sickness, dehydration, snow blindness, malnourishment, and the cold made traveling any distance nearly impossible. So let's take a breather from that for a second, just to decompress. This episode of Ghost Town is brought to you by Yarn. Yarn offers everything true crime from their chat fiction stories to choose-your-own-adventure experiences and now full audio dramas. My favorite is their latest podcast, Strange Street, where you follow the main character, CC into this mysterious alternate universe. It had me guessing the whole time. If you love true crime podcasts like I do, then this is for you. Are you running out of shows to binge? Same here. Now is the perfect time to check out some of the hit series on the Yarn app. Millions, yes, millions have already binged some of their top series like Mystery Dog, Modern Dating, and Haunted Camper. With over 27 million downloads, Yarn is a must. Their format is different than the traditional TV series. Imagine binging your favorite characters and series through text interactions right through your phone. Almost making it real. Addicting, right? Download Yarn now. Tap through the most addictive and immersive stories today only on Yarn. Trust me, with over 27 million downloads, Yarn is a must-play. Download Yarn for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Y-A-R-N. Download it today to watch, read, and listen to all your favorite fiction stories. From steamy to horror, Yarn has it all. Today's episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. Though we love what we do, Jason and I don't just Google true crime and weird history all day. Sometimes we need a freaking break. That's when I close my computer and pick up my phone for a little Best Fiends. Have you heard of it? You should because it's gotten over 100 million global downloads. We're huge fans of it and you should be too. Best Fiends challenges your brain with fun puzzle levels, but it's not like this huge thing. It's casual. You can play one level or 17, whatever time allows for. There are enough stresses in our life right now. Don't let a game stress you out. Best Fiends is also a game anyone can play, literally. It is for adults, but honestly, anyone can and enjoy themselves. Let me break it down. Best Fiends is an awesome mobile puzzle game and honestly different from anything I've ever played. It engages my brain, it's fun, and is whatever type of commitment you want. It's solo maintenance, you don't even need the internet. The internet! Speaking of internet, I was playing Best Fiends just to chill one day, I'm close to level 200, and my power went out, and honestly, I did not even notice. I played and like relaxed, and I was off the grid, and it was so fantastic. 
I only noticed I had no power or internet when it came back on and I had to get back to whatever I was doing at the time. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi. Hello. How are you? Hi. Checking in. Woo. Well, well, well. How's life? Is it okay? Are you hanging in there? Are you okay? I'm hanging in there. Yeah. We're, we're, we're. We're doing it. We're still we're still doing the thing. We're still doing the thing. The thing is still happening. And and I hope that your new year is is treating you better than the old year. Got a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Oh, that's nice. Appreciate it. You know, we take some hits, but this one was nice. It's from Yale Grad 32. Oh. So they should know. A Yale grad enjoys the podcast. Read some reviews saying rather unkind things, so I wasn't expecting much, but I found myself seriously entertained over a very long flight, and the title is Binged Over a Flight to Hawaii. Oh, wow. I hope you're being safe. (laughs) You hope to hopefully a a nice, enjoyable, restful vacation from your studies. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Sure, sure, sure. Anyway, we'll take it. Thank you so much. Yeah. I hope you don't listen to this one on your flight, but we're happy for good reviews. We would love more of them. And God, any enjoyment. You know what? I'll embrace that. I'll take that. Hello to all of our listeners, of course, and all of our patrons. Mm-hmm. Patreon.com slash ghost town pod. We should have right. a bonus episode up by the time you hear this. Ooh. We have that cooking today. Yeah. I want to say hello to our government. Hello. hello Brandon Gaddis. Hi. Ashley Matson. Hello. Ben Forsyth. You. Mayors and Governor Chris Witt. Hello. How you doing? Have I should have some there should be some new videos at youtube.com slash Jason Horton. Something from Strange Year mm. out there. A little mm. fun. I'm into the strange I'm into strange stuff. I'm into I, weird stuff. I know. I just listened to the, the Disney Club one that you Oh made. the uh, Videotopia. Yeah, Videotopia. Um, weird, right? Very it's just like it's like a snapshot into the weirdness that the continuing weirdness of Disney and what Disney does to appeal to more people as if they need that, it was great. I feel like I've made the comparison that, you know, Disney trying to have, you know, every arm of entertainment in some way, if they can. And obviously Disney Plus is very -hmm. successful. And they've done many, many successful things. A lot of misses, you know, Mm -hmm. some things didn't work out. But I feel like Amazon does a similar thing, you know, where they try to find their version of that, like, 
whether it's manufacturing mm-hmm. or whether it's food or, or whatever the case may be. So I find some similarities in them, but they're both two startups. So who knows what's yeah. going to happen? Yeah, no, they may not out. survive. Yeah. Until they do, though, let's, you know, continue to support small businesses. Yeah, exactly. Local small businesses like Disney, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, Amazon Prime, two different things. And but not not the huge corporate conglomerate that is Ghost Town. No, no, no. We are monsters. We are industry, baby. We're just moving 24 seven. You can't stop us. You can. It's pretty easy. Oh, yeah. Just leave us another bad review. <laughs> that'll that'll stop us in our tracks. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That'll put me into a tailspin for a week, week and a half. No problem. It's fine. I'm an entertainer. Do you want to go back into a tailspin, yeah. I guess? I, let's go back into a tailspin. Clearly, this is difficult. But again, I, I think retelling the story is worthwhile. But oh, my goodness. We got more to get through. On October 28th, around midnight, 17 days after the crash, an avalanche hits the plane. Woof. The survivors were sleeping inside of their fuselage uh, shelter when it happened. The snow filled their sleeping area and killed eight people. Enrique Platero, Liliana Methal, Gustav Nikolic, Daniel Maspons, Juan Menendez, Diego Storm, Carlos Roque, and Marcel Perez. The death of Perez, again, the team captain, the leader of the survivors, and Liliana Methal, who had been kind of a mother to the group, and again, the last woman survivor in their group was something that hit the group really hard. Those alive, though, were trapped inside and realizing that they were running out of air. Nando Parado found a metal pole from the luggage racks and was able to poke a hole in the fuselage roof, providing some ventilation. With considerable difficulty, on the morning of October 31st, they dug a tunnel from the cockpit to the surface, only to encounter a furious blizzard that left them no choice but to just stay inside the fuselage. So they were stuck in the plane for three days with three feet of headroom together with the corpses of those who had died in the avalanche. Perez, their leader, was dead, so cousins Eduardo and Fido Strouch and Daniel Fernandez assumed leadership. On the third day, they began to eat the flesh of the newly dead. Thankfully, a little bit of mercy occurred when the blizzard dissipated and they realized that they would need to really start considering getting out of there, forming an expedition team. After discussion, this team included Roberto Canessa, Nando Prado, Numa Chercati, and Antonio Vitztin, along with some others. They were allocated the largest rations of food and the warmest clothes. They were also spared the daily manual labor around keeping up the crash site that was essential for the group's survival so they could build their strength. November 15th, Arturo Noguera died, and three days later, Rafael Echeverin died, both from gangrene spread from their infected injuries. Numa Turcati, who would not eat human flesh at all, died on December 11th, 60 days after they crashed, without eating anything but the very initial rations. He only weighed 55 pounds. Also on November 15th, the expedition left camp. After a couple of hours, the group found some more parts of the plane's tail, and with it, a box of chocolates, three meat patties, a bottle of rum, cigarettes, extra clothes, comic books, and a little medicine. They also found the aircraft's two-way radio. The group decided to camp that night inside the tail section, and they built a fire, stayed up late, talking and reading comic books. The next morning, they kept going, although they did almost freeze to death on their first night sleeping outside, their second night of the expedition. They decided it would be wiser to return to the tail, remove the aircraft's batteries, and bring them back to the fuselage so they might power up the radio and make an SOS call to Santiago for help. Unbeknownst to any of them, though, the electrical system was a different 
voltage battery than the battery that they had, so it really would have never worked. They realized that they would have to climb out of the mountains if there was any chance at all of rescue. Of course, on the return trip, they were struck by a blizzard. One of the expedition members laid down to die, but Parada would not let him stop and took him back to the fuselage. In another tiny bit of hope or good news, the survivors heard on the transistor radio that the Uruguayan Air Force had resumed searching for them. It was now monumentally apparent that the only way out was to climb over the western mountain range. Using insulation from the rear of the fuselage, copper wire, and waterproof fabric that covered the air conditioning of the plane, they made a sleeping bag, which they realized was the only way that they could even consider sleeping outside again in the Andes' freezing temperatures. You might be wondering, too, like, what were these people wearing during all this? For example, Parado, there's a description of what he wore for the two months that he was trapped outside. Three pairs of jeans, three sweaters over a polo shirt, and four pairs of socks wrapped in a plastic shopping bag. That's what they wore, that's what they slept in, that's what they existed in. On December 12th, Nando Parado, Roberto Canessa, and Antonio Vitsin left to climb the mountain. Over 10 days, they went 38 miles. Again, they thought they were much, much closer than they actually were, so they only brought a three-day supply of food. They had no gear, no map or compass, and no climbing experience, and climbed pretty much straight up a very vertical mountain in sometimes waist-deep snow. That night, camping on the mountain in the freezing cold, Knesset called it the worst night of his life. On the second day, he thought he saw a road to the east and tried to persuade the group to head in that direction. Parado disagreed, and they argued and kept going the way that they had intended. And actually, if they had taken that route, apparently they would have been rescued a lot sooner, which is, again, very painful bits of information to ingest as you're going through the research for a story like this. Morning three of the trek, Knesset stayed at camp. Vitsin and Parado reached the base of a near-vertical wall, the summit... They summited the peak thinking they would see the green valley of Chile to the west, but instead, so they summited this peak, they look around them, and they just see endless snow-capped mountains in every direction. I can't even imagine what that would feel like to get, to accomplish that much, get out there, exhaustion, cold, malnourishment, and just to see that. So they rejoined Canesa at the camp, and at sunset just drank the rest of the cognac they found in the tail section. Parado said, Roberto, can you imagine how beautiful this would be if we were not dead men? The next morning, the three men realized they were running out of food, so Vitsin agreed to return to the crash site. Using an aircraft seat as a makeshift sleigh, he just kind of slid downhill and was back within the hour. So again, that speaks to how, how they're not going that far, but they are just climbing upward. Parado and Canesa refused to give up hope. They hiked for a couple more days, finding a source of the Rio San Jose, a substantial river. Following it, they saw evidence of camping. On day nine of their expedition, they saw some cows. That night, Canesa said to Parado that he could not go any further. As the men gathered wood to build a fire, they saw three men on horseback on the other side of the river that were leaving. As they were leaving, Parado called out to them, but the noise of the river made it impossible to communicate. One of the men across the river, again, as they were leaving, saw Parado and Canesa and called back tomorrow. The next day, mercifully, the men returned. Parado scribbled a note, attached it and a pencil to a rock with some string, and threw the message across the river. The note said, I come from a plane that fell in the mountains. I'm Uruguayan. We have been walking for 10 days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plane, there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out from here quickly, and we don't know how. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? So again, a really heartbreaking note and also shows kind of the mental place that these two men were in. 
Sergio Catalan, a Chile mule wrangler, threw some bread to the men across the river. He then rode for 10 hours on his horse to bring help. Eventually, Catalan reached a resort called Termas del Flaco. Here he stopped a truck who took him to a police station. News of some survivors of the Andes crash spread while Parado and Canesa were brought on horseback to civilization where they were fed and allowed to rest. They had hiked about 24 miles over 10 days. Since the plane crash, Canessa had lost about half his body weight and weighed only 97 pounds. On December 22, 1972, the two helicopters carrying search and rescue personnel reached the survivors. Only half of the survivors were able to be taken in the helicopters. Four members of the search and rescue team volunteered to stay with the seven survivors remaining on the mountain. This was the final night in the fuselage. The second flight of helicopters arrived the following morning at daybreak. They carried the remaining survivors to hospitals in Santiago for evaluation. They were treated for a variety of conditions including altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, and malnutrition. They had been on the mountain for two months. When they were rescued, the survivors initially explained that they had eaten some cheese and other food they had carried with them and the local plants and herbs. Of course, that was not true. They planned to discuss the details of how they survived, including their cannibalism, in private with their families, but there were rumors that the survivors had killed some of the others for food. On December 26th, two pictures were taken by the members of the Andean Relief Corps of a half-eaten human leg, and they were printed on the front page of two Chilean newspapers, El Mercurio and La Terca de la Hora, who reported that all the survivors had resorted to cannibalism. The authorities and the victims' families decided to bury the remains near the site of the crash in a common grave. Thirteen bodies were in touch, while another fifteen were mostly skeletal. Close to the grave, they built a simple stone altar and staked an orange iron cross on it. They placed a plaque on the pile of rocks inscribed, The world to its Uruguayan brothers close, O God to you. The glacier where all of this happened was later named the Glacier of Tears. But I would like to not end this story on a horribly, horribly depressing note. I read a lot of survivor interviews that were actually incredibly uplifting. Obviously, you know, so thankful that there were survivors. Eduardo Strouch talked about his life being profoundly changed afterwards. And it's incredibly positive. He says, my body and my mind start expanding in the universe. It was really amazing just to manage my mind, my thoughts. I realized the power of our minds. Our minds are amazing and we can change the direction of our life if we propose to do it. So that is the story of the Andes flight disaster. And whew, that was a hard one. There's a, the movie, is it Alive? Alive. I couldn't watch it. Yeah. It's just, it's just too much. Yeah. It's, and I, and I remember that movie, I've only watched it once and I, yeah, I c- couldn't watch it again. It does a really good job of, of kind of hitting the points of the story and really showing the, the bonding that happened during this horrific, I keep saying horrific, but it is horrific. Yeah. Really, really difficult. And that's, I think that's how most people know about this. But all of the survivors have written books. They do interviews. Like they're pretty vocal about the experience that they went through. It's also, I mean, you know, they kind of reluctantly and not voluntarily provided some kind of research on survival and the human spirit and and what you could do to overcome things, especially when we talk about you know, when we complain about the things we all complain yeah, about. And I was not just to say complaining that, earlier. And there's nothing wrong. I mean, listen, it's very human to complain about things, you know, in whatever size your world is at, at that time. But I think there's probably something valuable to get out of that that you probably would not be able to get just by doing research and, you know, putting, I don't know, what they would use, mice in a mm-hmm. 
similar situation. And, and, and I think there's, you know, just trying to find somewhat of a, a bright side on it. And the people that, you know, survive get to live on and tell the story of, of the people that they, you know, were together with. And, and it's good that, you know, kind of something positive came out of it for, for some people, but it's, it's a tough one. Yeah. I gotta keep my complaining in check for a little while. But be, you know what? Take 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 the day off of complaining, but then get yeah. right back to it. Oh yeah, tomorrow morning at daybreak, I'll get right back to it. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.